This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and much more. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit MyFlexLearning.com forward slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com forward slash B-E. Hello, everybody. You are listening once again to the Authority Podcast on the B Podcast Network. I'm pleased today to be joined by A.J. Crable. A.J. serves as conservator at DeSoto ISD in Texas, where during his guidance, DeSoto improved from F ratings in academics, finance, and governance to B ratings. And as a governance director at the Council of Great City Schools, he has also previously served as deputy commissioner at the Texas Education Agency and board chair of Kansas City Public Schools. His new book, now available, is called Great on Their Behalf. Why School Boards Fail and How Yours Can Become Effective. AJ, welcome to The Authority. Thanks for having me, Ross. So I wanted to, before we get into the specifics of the the board piece of this, context set in a way that I think is really important to this whole conversation, which is, in your view, what is the purpose of the public education system, right? These boards are operating in that context. That's the role that they serve. But a lot of times when we start talking about our individual roles and functions, we fail to zoom out and say, okay, what is this system meant to do in the first place? Yeah, no, I appreciate that as a inquiry, as a starting place. Because all of the work that I do is really founded on this one premise, that school systems exist for one reason and one reason only, and that's to improve student outcomes. That there's no other reason that school systems exist, that they don't exist to have great books and great buildings and great buses. They don't exist to provide employment in the county. They don't exist to make parents happy. They don't exist to make teachers happy. Like Mm -hmm. all of these are reasonable things and I'm not opposed to any of these things. They don't exist to have a balanced budget. They don't exist to feed children lunch. Like all of these are reasonable and valuable things to have, but none of these are the reason the school system exists. And so all of these things, you'd only have them to the extent that they are in service of the reason for which the school system does exist. And that is one reason and one reason only to improve student outcomes to actually cause an increase in what students know and are able to do. And and part of the reason 
that I go so hard in the paint on this issue is because when students walk across the stage, when they leave the school system, they're not gonna be able to take the books with them. They're not gonna be able to take the buses with them. They're not gonna be able to take the school lunch with them. They're not gonna be able to grab their favorite teachers, sling them over mm-hmm. their shoulder and take them with them. The, the only thing that our students will have when they leave, when they go on to live choice-filled lives and to pursue their hopes and dreams and, and to be able to take care of themselves and their families, the only thing they'll have with them from the school system, their time in the school system, what they know and what they're able to do, mm-hmm. the student outcomes that they've acquired during that time. And so this is why school systems exist, is to improve student outcomes. And with that as a basis, all of the work, uh, my book, all the work and my coaching and my team, what we spend all of our time on is helping school systems make the transition from a focus on all of those adult inputs that I just described. Mm -hmm. You know, the buses, the books, uh, the lunches, who gets what contract, who gets hired, who gets fired. These are all the adult inputs. All of the work of my team and I is around how do we help school system transition from an adult inputs focus to a student outcomes focus, to a focus that is purely obsessed with how do we cause improvements in what students know and are able to do. Do you think that our our system, our districts, our schools currently have a good enough, comprehensive enough, long-term enough way of really being able to evaluate student outcomes because you know, it does occur that right, and, and these are the challenges that everybody's trying to make in their individual environments and they and some of it's predictive and some of it is short term it's test scores assessments that kind of thing um, but you know often I think if there's a disagreement between a board and a district leadership that this is the area they're focused in right there's something that one side or the other believes will be more or less impactful to positive yeah. student outcomes. But do we have a good enough way of even being able to say what those outcomes are in the long term? Because the outcomes we're really talking about are being able to be a positive contributor to community, pursue a career path that you desire, right? These kind of things. It's not that you get an A or a C on this test, <laughs> but often that's the only data that's in front of us. And I'm curious if your view of outcomes being the metric that you're focused on, if, yeah. you know, what work we need to do to do better at, at understanding what those outcomes even are. Well, first bless you for elevating what I think is the critical conversation to be having. I think people of good intention can disagree on which outcomes for students should we be focused on and can disagree on which measures of those are the most indicative of whether or not children actually know and are able to do something. So Mm -hmm. people can agree or disagree on should third graders know how to read? And I think some people make the argument, no, they don't need phonics. Yes, they do need phonics. People of good intention can debate that. So they decide, well, they do need to be able to read phonetically. Then people can disagree, well, which assessments would best let you know whether or not a child can read something phonetically? Um, Those are really valuable debates to have. And this is part of what I am both frustrated by some days, but I think is ultimately more of an asset of public education in the United Mm -hmm. States, is that the decision of which outcomes for students to focus on, which things that students should know and be able to do, and which assessments associated with that, that the decision around that is largely delegated by the community 
to a group of their representatives. And we refer to that group of community representatives as a school board. And so because of that, the answer to those questions are gonna vary, vary by locale. In your community, the answer might be, this is what we want students to know and be able to do. Maybe you live in a, in a Gulf Coast community and underwater welding is a really great job. And right. that's what folks want their kids to know and be able to do. Great. Then it makes sense that part of their career technical education at the high school is probably going to have something to do with welding and underwater welding and marine biology and other things of that nature. But that's because those are things that they'd want their students to know and be able to do because of the context of their community. You go to a different part of the country, you know, someplace in Kansas, the breadbasket, and people are probably going to want their kids to know something about agronomy or animal husbandry or something like agriculture or biology and genetics, you know, maybe want to splice up some new wheat. And so in that context, maybe they're saying, here's the things that we think our students should know and be able to do. I mean, so what it is that students should know and be able to do that, that is inherently a community conversation. That's the way we've constructed public education in the United States. And it's then delegated to the board to be the representatives of the community's vision and values, the representatives of what the community says is most important for students to know and be able to do. And then it's delegated to the administration, the superintendent and their staff to figure out how do we get there. But that debate, what is it that we should be aiming for mm-hmm. and how would we know, how do we measure that? That is a, a very appropriate argument for a board to be having, for a community to be having. Ultimately, right. the board does need to vote, make a decision about where it stands on that issue. Uh, but that it's having that debate, that we're debating uh, the things that our students need for us to debate. That is a far more valuable and fruitful debate for children for right. us to be having than debating the colors of the school bus or right. debating should there be this food served on Tuesday or should it be served on Wednesday or all the other things that really get down into the day-to-day weeds, but that don't specifically lean toward what is it that our students know and are able to do. You know, and, and so even understanding that there's a lot of variability, you know, what the objectives and goals are by community. Are there certain non-negotiables of school boards that you think like board members and, you know, as they're thinking about their role should really consider like musts regardless of where they are? Well, certainly there are non-negotiable behaviors of boards that we find are more aligned with improvements to student outcomes and other behaviors. Uh, but that's things like you should have goals. Mm-hmm. You should have, those goals should be smart. They should be specific, measurable, attainable, results-focused, and time-bound. You should monitor progress toward those goals. What those goals are, that's the question you asked previously. And what I'm saying is that's up for the board to decide. So what they choose to focus on, that is a community decision. That they should, in fact, choose something to focus on and put in place an aligned system of monitoring progress toward that. That is absolutely what we would describe an essential behavior for a board to be intentionally focused on improving Mm -hmm. student outcomes. And one of the things kind of along those lines and thinking about the fact that, one, clearly there's a lot of shaping and molding, right, and variability by community, and there's also certain understanding of what the job should be and shouldn't be. And also, the point of of the board and the board members is to have a a different perspective and and hopefully a, a variety of different perspectives, right? They're not meant to be for example, the curriculum and instruction experts and those kind of things. But are there also, I mean, some of those areas in which you would recommend that board members should receive training when they join the board to, uh, you know, I often ask 
authors on this show about the concept that writing a book is just as much about learning about things that interest you and you think are important so that you can then translate them than just writing down what you already know, right? And so in this case, yes, people that they're being elected and chosen for these board positions based on their history, the perspective they have, what people think they can do. But also this is a, you know, a teaching and learning uh, profession, right? There, there also must be things that we, we should want them to be learning as they're going into that job so that they have that perspective as well. The way you're asking the question, the answer is definitively no. Uh, a variant of your question, though, the answer is, yeah, absolutely. And so first, we'll get to the no, and then we'll get to the mm -hmm. yes. So the no, do board members, are they elected to be educational experts? No. Definitively right. hard stop. No. Uh, that is not the job of the board. The board, no matter what the makeup of the board, is not an educational expert. That is not why board members are selected. That's not what board members are there for. The board is not an educational expert. In fact, the board is only an expert in one area and one area only, and that's the vision and values of the community. Mm -hmm. That's why the board is selected. So if you and I are both running for the school board and you have three times as much knowledge about education as I do, but my views on education are matched with the community's vision and values mm -hmm. and yours are not, who's the community going to elect? Right. And so what that reveals for you is that the community is not, in fact, selecting people for educational competence. Mm -hmm. To be blunt, if that was the case, I would have never gotten elected to a school board. And if, you, if you're going to look at when I got elected to the school board and who are the nine best people in the city to serve on the school board, I would not have made the cut. I would have made the cut if it was 90 or 900. And I'm not even honestly clear that I would have made the cut if it was 9,000. The reality is I was not in any way, shape or form, cut out to govern a large education institution. I had no experience in it. I thought I'd done my homework. Looking back now, I clearly was ineffective at having done my homework. But I was elected not because I was an educational expert or a governance expert. I was elected because people trusted that I would represent their vision and their values in the school system. And so that because that is the job of the board, and because that's the criteria that people apply, people would rather select someone who they believe represents their vision and values over someone who has vastly more content knowledge areas, education, because that's the nature of the job, then no, you don't need any advanced training in education, finance, school board members aren't expected to be finance experts either. They are fiduciaries, but that's not the same thing as being a finance expert. Right. So they do have to have the final say on major issues of finance as according to state law, but they're not expected to be finance experts. So no, the, your initial question was, is there something in these content areas about education or about running school system that they have to know? No, the answer is definitively no, that's not their job. The job is just to represent the vision and values of the community. Now, if your question was, are there things about governing a school mm -hmm. district that it would be awesome for school board members to know before they get elected? 100%. Right. Um, in fact, in the work that we do with school systems across the nation is we aggressively coach school boards to lead training in their communities such that everyone who is interested in the future of possibly considering a run for the school board is actually trained on what it looks like to effectively serve on a school board before they ever even file. 
like unfortunately what we often do right now is we wait for people to get elected and then we try to provide them the training they need this is an awful awful approach because what happens is they spend all of their time talking about adult inputs during their campaign because they don't know any better because no one's trained them any differently. Mm-hmm. Then they get on the school board and then we'll tell them, by the way, your job's about student outcomes, not about adult inputs. Right. And then they've got to decide, do I go back to the people who supported me and I tell them all these promises I made you about adult inputs, I'm not going to do those because now I understand that's not the job and I didn't adequately do my homework before you elected me. Or are they going to go back to the community and say, this school board is not letting me do the things that you elected me to do. So let's start getting some candidates to get these yahoos out of here. And and we're going to blow this thing up if they don't do what we want. Like Mm -hmm. the reality is it's most likely not going to be the former response, but that I'd say that's on the school board because you allowed there to be a condition in the community where these folks didn't have access to the knowledge and skills around effective governing before they ran. And so that's the argument that we make is we want boards leading the training in the community multiple times per year, whether it's a year that there's a school board members on the ballot or not, but multiple times per year that the board should be going out and leading community trainings on what does effective school board governance look like? What does it look like to be intensely focused on improving student outcomes? such that anybody who ever runs for the school board and ultimately gets elected to the school board received full training before they even filed for the school board. Right. And a really key word in your response there was representative and then the school boards being representatives of the community and community's vision and values. And those perspectives, as you said, they're adult inputs and yet it's about student outcomes do boards and it's not exclusive to boards it's also about other folks in in leadership positions but do they typically have enough access or seek enough access to truly representative perspectives of those students what the students want in their schools what outcomes the students want to achieve because i would argue and observe that frequently you know in in situations where boards go wrong so to speak the students are pawns in a political game between adults and and they might want something completely different than what this side and this side are arguing would be correct. Of course, adults have certain responsibilities to make decisions based on their perspective. However, it is about the future of those students and where they want to be in their lives. Yeah, I'm actually not opposed to the idea of tweaking laws across the country that would allow students to have more direct voice in their own governance. Most states seem to forbid anyone who's not eligible to vote on the school board to serve on the school board, which means anybody under the age of 18 is out. But I certainly would be open to having a national conversation around, are there any variances in that that should be considered in the unique circumstance of school boards because the their unique institution of the organization where all of their customer base is not eligible to serve on the governing body. That being said, what it does suggest in our current framework is that the board does have a proactive obligation to go out and engage in listening to the parts of the community that it is not sufficiently listened to. So the board, to say that the board represents the vision and value of the community isn't to suggest that they show up gifted with the wisdom of the ages. 
It's right. to suggest that their job is to, once they're elected, is to then go out into the community and harvest the vision and values of the community from uh, the people themselves. And so they've got to do listening for folks who come to meetings. They've got to do listening for folks who don't go to meetings. They've got to listening, do listening for adults. They've got to do listening for students. They've got to do listening for community members and parents. They've got to do listening of staff. And all of that listening, the accumulation of that, then they bring all of that together and then the group of them as a board. And what did we hear? What did we understand? What does it all mean? And based on that, what set of goals and guardrails can we synthesize from all that we heard? What set of goals can we synthesize from what we heard about the community's collective vision for what its students to know and be able to do? What kind of guardrails can we synthesize from the collective values, the non-negotiables that we heard from the community about things that would be unacceptable to have mm -hmm. done in the school system? And the board takes all of that collective vision and values that it's gone out and done intentional listening to gather and then codifies that into a set of goals and guardrails that they use to then govern the organization. But they've got to go out and do the listening. Right. Yeah, that's I think about it in terms of who are you talking to? Who are you listening to? Whose perspectives are you really seeking? Because clearly, whether or not there's a change in, in who's voting, it's one slice of the community. And in school board elections, in most places, it's also the, the voter participation is not as good as it could be, right? So you're hearing from certain elements. That's you right. have these public right. comment periods at school board meetings. It's typically dominated by parents and they should be heard too. But it's still, it's only one part of that community. And there could be other things out there that it's, and that's when we talk about what our goals are and we're trying to make the case to one another. We have a disagreement and, you know, we think the school, the system should do this. We think the district should do that. Well, what better way to, to prove the validity of your case around student outcomes than by showing, look, here's the conversations we've had. Here's who we talked to. Here's what we know. Here's the, here's why we're trying to do this. Um, I mean, who maybe, maybe that could, that could solve some of the ambiguity around, okay, as you said, well-intentioned people can have disagreements, but there might be pieces of information that they're just not accessing about what that looks like. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, and, and you're, this all relates to your uh, core thesis, I would say, student outcomes don't change until adult behaviors change. And, you know, I know in that way, you also listed out three, three key areas in which boards would tend to fail, knowledge, skill, mindset. Talk about that a little bit. Why, how did you identify that those are the three key areas and within them, you know, which is really the biggest mover and how does that then relate to the behaviors that, you know, adults really need to commit to? Yeah. If you're going to make the argument that student outcomes don't change until adult behaviors change, then certainly you have to have a theory for what is it that drives change in adult behavior. And so, as my team and I just read and reflected on our collective experiences, a, a lot of former board members, former school system administrators, former educators, former parents, and just really trying to think through what are the things that help move adult behavior that really cause adults to reflect in such a way that we go back and say, you know what, I think I could do this differently. And what we identified after all of that was three key levers. Um, the ones you described, knowledge, what do I know? Skill, what can I do with what I know? And mindset, what is my view of the world? So knowledge is pretty straightforward. And probably the most basic example of that in our work 
is around goal setting. Boards should adopt goals. Those goals should be about what students know and are able to do, aka those goals should be about student outcomes. So that's a knowledge thing. The next layer is skill. What can you do with the knowledge that you have? It's one thing to know that you should have a goal. It's another thing to be able to actually create a goal based on community feedback that is actually a smart goal, specific, measurable, attainable results, focused and time bound. It's actually grounded in student outcomes. And so there's a skill component and that just has to be trained on so that folks can then go out and implement that. But of the three levers, knowledge, skill and mindset, in our experience by far, the most powerful lever for moving, for causing change in adult behavior is the mindset. Uh, where knowledge is what you know, skill is how you use what you know. Mindset is how do I view the world? How do I make meaning of the things that are happening around me? And in each moment, the, the way that I view the world is occurring for me at the moment is decisive in how I then show up and behave in that world. So if I believe that little AJ just doesn't want to learn, then if little AJ doesn't do well in one particular area, then I'll, that to me is just evidence why well, I told you he just doesn't want to learn. Like, it's not that he couldn't do well, he's not doing well because he doesn't want to learn. Well, in that case, it doesn't make sense for me to keep trying. It, you know, just I'll leave him alone. And this is his problem. When he wants to learn, then I'll work with him some more. But that's a mindset issue. That, that's a view of, what's, of how I make meaning, of how I make sense of what's going on in the world around me. If nothing changes except for my mindset, instead of the mindset being little AJ doesn't want to learn, and instead, my mindset is little AJ desperately wants to learn this. There's just this gap between where he's at and where he wants to be. And my job is to help be a bridge over that gap. That's a mindset. Nothing has changed. My knowledge hasn't changed. My skills haven't changed. But because that is how I view the world, because that is my lens for making meaning, inside of that, when little AJ doesn't do well in a particular area, that's just a trigger for me. Oh, well, he wants it. He just needs some help getting there. And my job is to be that help. My job is to help be the bridge to get him to where he's trying to go. And so now my adult behavior is to lean in. And the previous behavior, little AJ doesn't do well, inside the mindset that he doesn't want to learn, that's an excuse to just lean back. But inside of the mindset, he wants it. He just needs support. Inside of that mindset, when he struggles, I lean in. Nothing mm -hmm. has changed except for my mindset, my view of what's happening in the world around me. I've gone from a disempowering mindset to an empowering mindset. This is the most constructive place for us to work with our boards to make sure that first and foremost, before we even worry about the knowledge and skills, that we are working with boards to come from an empowering mindset that's focused on student outcomes rather than a disempowering mindset focused on adult inputs. You know, with respect to mindset, I think part of that as well is the uh, core assumptions we make about one another, right? Okay. And how we enter our role. And I would say it's it's critical that each of these folks involved in in helping to support positive student outcomes, board members, administrators, teachers, parents, that there's certain core assumptions and positive ones, right? That yeah. we want them to be making about each other to set the foundation for a productive relationship. Um, how would you, how would you define that? How would you, like the, you know, the, 
the typical educator is focused on X, Y, Z and, and so on. Um, because certainly I would say that in each of these people, like the reason why they're doing what they're doing is because they have good intentions. They want good things to happen. They may disagree on how it happens, but it's when there's a breakdown and we believe that this or that role or this person has, you know, doesn't have those intentions that, I mean, it, it becomes impossible to be constructive. So certainly as the board is trying to work together as a team, there's no board member individually has any authority whatsoever, mm -hmm. only the board. So a group of board members acting in concert, only the board has authority. Individual board members don't have authority. So certainly there's a value to them working collaboratively to try to, to try to solve for whatever challenges are coming up. And so inside of that, any type of mindset that helps create alignment of purpose really helps escalate us in that direction. So rather than board members having a mindset, you know, these kids just don't want to learn. It, and the board members get aligned around this idea. Actually, they do want to learn. And it's on me as a board member, whether or not I'm putting in place the supports for them to, to make that leap or not. Mm -hmm. That is just a radically different mindset. And so part of our coaching is we start off with a two-day orientation workshop that much of it is focused on really engaging board members at the level of mindset and trying to identify what is your current mindset, what is your current outlook. One of those that I describe in the book is around um, inviting board members to begin to get present to what is it in my behavior that's actually making it harder for my students to be successful? Like where am I actually a stumbling block in the life of my students? Not because I was intended to be, but as I replay the video of my leadership over time as I really kind of rewind the video to try to identify what exactly was I doing in that moment. I begin to notice times where my choices, my adult behaviors actually may have made it harder for students to be successful. And then the invitation of board members is to begin to challenge and look for what was the mindset that I was living inside of in that moment that had me behaving in that way and begin to challenge, is that really the mindset that is going to help me be the leader that I want to be. Because the thing to know about school board members, across the country, most of most of us are volunteers. We don't get paid anything. Right. Certainly I didn't as a board member across Texas, you know, or we don't get paid. It's a volunteer thing. Some states there's a stipend, some states there's even a salary, but most of the places across the country, it's a volunteer role. And so people are just raising their hand and saying, I, I, I want to really help students in my community be great. But wanting it, the intention and causing it the impact are not the same thing. And so what happens in this two-day orientation workshop is we really give board members an opportunity to interrogate the gulf that might exist between their intention, which is about how do we really make something great for students and their impact. Are we actually making something great for students? Right. And, and begin to identify what is the mindset of mine that's holding me back and what are the specific behaviors that I can adopt that would have me living into my intention instead. And so I do think it is a mindset issue that has to be worked on first. I think that starts in the boardroom because I think the culture of the organization starts in the boardroom. And so I realize in your question, it kind of leaned toward the classroom, but I don't believe that's where culture starts. I believe the culture starts in the boardroom and that the way the board behaves and, and the beliefs that the board has about its students and about its community begin to create the collective framework of belief for the entire institution that trickles down from the boardroom to the classroom.
I mean, and within that boardroom, right, our, our the behavior is defined largely by how we spend our time. And, yeah. and, you know, relates back to mindset as well, you know, for everybody in their lives, like, there's times when we let that get away from us and we realize, oh, I'm not really spending my time on the things that matter, or I'm not dedicating enough time to X, Y, Z. And we need to reset, recalibrate, um, you know, and I think that happens, that certainly happens to boards, right, where they feel like, okay, our meetings are being dominated by X, Y, or Z, and that's not really what we should be doing. But what are we supposed to do about it, right? So yeah. how would you, you know, speak to this issue of time and how boards, you know, if they're ineffective, how they might be spending that time and then how they should really be spending it instead? Yeah, so the, the number one behavior that we suggest that boards can engage in that has them be intensely focused on improving student outcomes is setting goals about student outcomes, setting goals that describe what, what is it we want students to know and be able to do and then following that up with monitoring progress toward those goals and spending half of your time each month in board meetings, monitoring progress for that goal. So if we spend four hours a month in board meetings, the question is, are we spending at least two of those hours actually interrogating what is student performance right now relative to the goal that we set? And what are we doing to begin to make progress toward that goal? But that should be 50% of the board's time every month. If the board meets, for five hours a month, great. Are you spending two and a half hours monitoring progress to your goal? If the board meets 10 hours a month, great. Are you spending five hours a month monitoring your progress toward your goal? But the, the board, is, if it wants to be intensely focused on improving student outcomes, part of its way of exhibiting that is by investing half of its time each month of its total minutes in all of its meetings, all of its board meetings, board work sessions, committee meetings, you take all of the meetings of the board or groups of the board have, you clump all of that together, and then you ask yourself, is half of that being invested in a monitoring progress toward the goals we have for student outcomes? Now, obviously that assumes that the board has adopted goals about student outcomes. Unfortunately, that is not an assumption that we can make. Most boards across the country, in fact, have not. There are many boards across the country that just, the board has never adopted goals. You ask the board how many goals you have, it's like, well, we don't actually have any goals. That's a large chunk of the country uh, where the board members have not taken that first critical step in the direction of what is, is it to honor the vision of the community? What is it to be intentionally focused on improving student outcomes? So step one, actually adopt some goals, but it's, but it's not any goals. Because if you look at a lot of the places across the country that have adopted goals, there's often like five of them. And one of them is, you know, we're gonna make sure that the money's great. And one of them, we're gonna make sure the teachers are great, and the parents are great, and the facilities are great. And then maybe as an afterthought, oh yeah, and let's, we want kids to do good too. And so that's our fifth goal, but, it, but it, it's not specific, it's not measurable. And it's often you know, just muddled up in a bunch of other goals that are about the adult inputs in the system. So what we would coach a board is definitely don't have more than five goals. I had a board chair call me once, it's like, all right, AJ, we've taken your advice, we've got goals. Um, we've we got 120 of them, it's gonna be great. It's like, no, it's not gonna be great. Uh, what you really want is five or fewer. We generally coach boards have no more than three goals. And then once you have those goals in place, make sure that they're smart goals, that they're actually about student outcomes. So instead of having a goal around, you know, the budget will be balanced, they have a goal around literacy or numeracy or problem solving or communications or critical thinking and things of that nature. Instead of having a goal around uh, teacher retention or a goal around curriculum instruction, 
all of the goals should only be about student outcomes. They should only be measures of what children know and are able to do. And then redesign your monthly board meetings to invest at least 50% of your minutes every single month without fail into monitoring progress towards your goals for student outcomes. Yeah, and then along you know, those lines of those goals, and I think that relates back to our prior conversation about how to kind of define and evaluate outcomes. And it relates to you know, whether school board accountability needs to be better defined and understood. If I think about, if I compare the way a school board functions, for example, to a, a corporate board and, you know, the corporate board typically, right, they have, they, they have the CEO, the CEO is accountable to them. They're accountable to the shareholders. Yeah. Share price may not necessarily be representative of the strength of the health of the business, right? It's its own <laughs> thing. Um, you know, so everybody kind of knows who they're accountable to. And they also know that if they're making a decision that's in contrast to the understood metrics that they have to provide a justification for that, right? Mm -hmm. And it's why sometimes the very best CEOs are the CEOs who built the most successful businesses were the best communicators, right? When Jeff yeah. Bezos was building Amazon and for however many 10 plus 15 years, they weren't profitable, but he was saying, well, I'm taking the long view because I'm focusing on X, Y, Z. And everybody was in communication. They knew that it was imperative that they communicate or else they weren't going to be in those positions anymore. Yeah. And over the long term of success. So with the board, yes, we know they are accountable to their voters, technically speaking. And we also know that, you know, they can't be responsible for the community's relative level of engagement if people in the community aren't participating in those elections or paying enough attention to what's happening in schools or really letting their voices be heard. There's only so much that can be done. But yet, then when it comes down to, okay, but what we're making decisions based on what? You know, how do we really know truly if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing in these roles. I mean, maybe we're taking these inputs that people told us they want us to do when we're fighting for those things, but maybe we are, again, eliminating uh, a superintendent based on something that has nothing to do with outcomes. And we're just saying we disagree with him on some issue, some policy, some whatever, yeah. and we're gonna replace him with somebody else. And, you know, I guess it's a way of saying like the school board should want to be accountable to the community, even if the community isn't doing a good job of holding them accountable, um, right? Because they're there for a mission and they want to do a good, but do we even have a really good way of defining that? Uh, generally, no, we don't. Uh, that, that work generally falls to school boards themselves to be the arbiter of and the implementer of effective community outreach and engagement. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's a challenging scenario is that if the board doesn't know better, then it's unlikely the community is going to know better because it's generally the board's job to have informed the community about that. Um, and that's the same that holds with the other issue that you brought up around superintendent evaluation. Is the board is really responsible for making sure that it understands effective evaluation practice. And if the board doesn't know better, and often the superintendent doesn't know better either. We have a very different view of superintendent evaluation than most school boards across the nation are practicing. Most school boards are practicing a very, what we would describe as either adult inputs or adult opinion or adult feelings based evaluation process. Well, how board members feel about the superintendent winds up making 
the corpus of the evaluation. Well, how do you feel that the superintendent has done this year? How do you feel that they interact with parents? How do you feel that they interact with senior cabinet members? How do you feel about their performance overall? And we just find this to be a incredibly disrespectful to children way of evaluating the superintendent. That the way you should evaluate the superintendent is did things actually improve for children? And right. if they did, then the superintendent is doing their job. And if they didn't, the superintendent is probably not doing their job. But to have it be so adult feeling focused, as opposed to student outcomes focused, we find profoundly disrespectful to the needs of children, because there isn't space in there for what children are actually experiencing. There's only space for what adults are experiencing. Yeah. And so the challenge that we would offer to boards is let go of all of your existing evaluation practices that are heavily grounded in We'll survey the board. Each board member will fill out their own little survey of one stars to five stars on all of these areas that board members aren't experts in to begin with, because board members aren't HR experts either, just like they're not education experts. So instead of having them fill out their stars about their opinions, because most of these superintendent evaluations are really just opinion surveys of boards, but they're not grounded in our children actually learning. What is it the children we've said that children should know and be able to do? And have we actually made progress toward that? And that that isn't the corpus, the, the centerpiece of evaluation is heartbreaking. We would say that should be at least 50%, if not more, of the evaluation should be, are we actually making reasonable progress toward the goals? That as defined 12 months ago, not as defined tonight when it's time to evaluate. Right now, we're going to sit down and figure out what does reasonable progress toward the goals look like for the superintendent. And then 12 months from tonight, we're gonna to use to that to evaluate them on. That's what I'd want to see boards doing that would have them actually standing fully in their role of representing the community's vision and values as a way of creating the context for improvements in student outcomes. But that is not unfortunately how most superintendent evaluation is conducted. I, I visited with one board and the board chair said without any kind of embarrassment or sense that what he was saying was horrific in the extreme. When I asked, hey, why did you all let your last superintendent go? He said, well, you know, he just doesn't care enough about the kids because he didn't go to enough baseball games. I'm like, what are you talking about? Oh, well, yeah, here in this community, we really care about baseball. And, and if, if he actually cared about the kids, he would have been in more baseball games that he attended. But instead, you know, he was spending his time doing other things. And so that means he didn't care about the kids. You know, you know, we felt like he just it didn't care enough. He had to go. Yeah, that's a horrible basis for superintendent evaluation. Right. Um, unless 12 months ago, you sat down and said our proxy for you actually doing your job isn't going to be our children learning. It's going to be do we feel like you visited, attended enough baseball games? If you let the superintendent know that 12 months in advance, at least it's not arbitrary. It's still harmful, but at least though it's not arbitrary. But we would have it be neither arbitrary nor harmful. Then instead, we'd say, figure out what we want students to know and be able to evaluate your superintendent primarily on that basis. Yeah, and one of the, the biggest challenges as well that, of course, has dramatic ramifications for student success uh, is the, the current challenges around teacher recruitment and retention, right? And that we, we're not having enough Huge. coming into the profession. We're losing a lot of the ones we do have. Students are being taught more and more by inexperienced teachers, teachers that yeah. may not have certifications or there's just fewer available. Is that an area in which boards could be having a positive impact? 
Yes, but uh, indirectly. Mm-hmm. So the work of school boards is inclusive of identifying, hiring, supporting a highly effective superintendent. My experience suggests that probably one of the number one indicators that you have a highly effective superintendent other than the student outcomes data is that they can attract or retain a highly effective group of senior leaders to surround themselves with. And the evidence that you have highly effective senior leaders other than that you've got improvements in student outcomes is that they can identify and recruit and retain and support a highly effective group of principals. And what's the evidence that you have a highly effective principal um, beyond data about student performance is they can recruit and retain highly effective teachers. Mm-hmm. And so there is this sense that if the board is being highly effective itself, it's going to be better positioned to attract, recruit, retain highly effective leadership from the boardroom all the way to the classroom. And so that doesn't get you automatically the teachers you need, but it does help keep you from bleeding out the teachers that you have. I've watched teachers take a $5,000 pay cut to get away from a vindictive and harmful principal. And so if we allow toxic leadership into Mm -hmm. our school systems, that is going to have an effect. The most effective folks will leave and we won't be able to convince them to come back. And so the board conducting itself in an effective manner and selecting and recruiting and supporting an effective superintendent is about the best strategy it has at making sure that that then cascades throughout the organization and results in a heightened ability to recruit and retain our highly effective teachers. But, but in a context that we're in today where there are significant shortages uh, for the time being, every single inch counts that every single step in the direction of retaining our most effective teachers and recruiting the most effective teachers is hugely impactful in our students. Yeah. So AJ, my, my final question for you is what's the most promising trend you've seen in your, your conversations over the past several months, couple of years that you've been having as you talk to boards and leaders and, and hopefully see certain mindsets and things starting to shift? Is there something that stands out that you're saying, all right, you know, we're starting to, to get a better understanding of this, or there's more people that are getting on board with this idea, and that's a good thing? Yeah, two things came to mind when you asked that. One that's about school boards and one that's not. The one that's not about school boards is I'm doing more and more work, not with the school district, but with individual schools, particularly high schools, around student-led restorative practices. So where I'm coming in and I'm training the adults and then training the students on how to redesign the behavior system in the school such that when little Roz and AJ create some type of difficulty Mm -hmm. and make some suboptimal decisions, that instead of the two of us getting sent off to the principal's office, we get sent to a group of our peers and they lead through a restorative process that's seeking to hold the two of us accountable for, for repairing whatever harm that we've created and then being reintegrated back into the school rather than relying on exclusionary discipline. Because mm-hmm. uh, honestly, sending little AJ home for three days just means I'm gonna level up my Fortnite character for three days, but it doesn't mean that I'm gonna magically learn some amount of character. And it's also doesn't mean that whatever harm I created is gonna get repaired. 
And so having students engage in repairing the harm, but having that work led by their peers, a student-led restorative process rather than an adult-led one, that's something that I'm pr pretty excited about uh, that I get to personally be involved in. So working with my students and my teachers to help deploy that has been a real joy. On the board side, I have seen multiple states that have gotten involved with recognizing that at the state level, the legislative framework doesn't in any way call for school boards to actually know about or be accountable for improvements in student outcomes. And that a lot of the training then that they're receiving or responsible to receive in no way is focused on improving student outcomes. I've watched over the past few years as several different states have started to move in a new direction where they've actually said, you know what, we should probably not only explicitly say that school board members uh, that the school board is accountable for improvements to student outcomes, but we should also require the school board members actually receiving training on this. Yeah. Uh, in the book, one of the things we talked about is we did a study of over 900 sessions, school board training sessions from uh, nationwide, over 900 school board sessions looking for what percentage of those sessions would be specifically about setting goals for student outcomes about what students should know and be able to do or around monitoring progress toward those goals. Like these key behaviors mm -hmm. of being student outcomes focused. What percentage of the training the board members received or the, the training that was available to board members was actually focused on that. After coding all these sessions, which is two weeks of my life that I will not be getting back, we found that less than 4% of all training sessions available to board members had anything to do even tangentially with what it is that students should know and be able to do or how to monitor progress towards the goals that we've set for what students should know and be able to do. And so each time that a state starts to move in a new direction away from that phenomenon is a huge victory for children. And so that is that is one trend that I'm seeing slowly pick up steam that is really giving me uh, hopefulness for our school boards. Excellent. Well, listeners, the book is called Great on Their Behalf, There Being Students in this case, right? We'll put the links below to where you can find the book. AJ, is there anywhere else uh, you'd like our listeners to check out? Uh, if folks want to reach out, they can always hit me up personally. I'll just go to ajcrable.com. That's A-J-C-R-A-B-I-L-L.com or, or email me at aj at ajcrable.com. Excellent. Well, listeners, check that out. We'll put the website link below, social media handles, and of course, where you can find the book. Please do also subscribe to The Authority for more in-depth author interviews like this one and visit bpodcast.network to learn about all of our shows. AJ, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a really great conversation. I enjoyed it. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.